Hi, this is Dave Spray. I just had a great interview with Merrill Markley. Merrill has a unique perspective on tax law because she used to work on the staff of Congressman Kevin Brady, who was subsequently chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. We also talked about the history of tax policy and how uh, tax policy influenced greatly the history of Western civilization in ways people had not even thought of. In particular, many people feel that the fall of the Roman Empire was due to uh, several factors, including the tax system at the time. So I hope you enjoy this great, wide-ranging interview with Merrill Markley. Hi, Merrill. Hi, Dave. Well, how are you today? I am excited to be on the IC Disc Show. Well, I am glad to have you on here, and uh, we are already recording. So uh, normally, I have my guests take five or ten minutes to kind of talk about their background, but I have so many things I want to cover with you today. Do you mind if I just do kind of a quick recap of your background based on my understanding? Sure. The okay. shorter, the better. <laughs> okay. Well, I am really happy that you're on the show today. So Merrill Markley is an international tax lawyer whose career has included stints with a Fortune 500 company, two of the four big four accounting firms. And I believe you also were a member of the staff of Congressman Kevin Brady. Uh, is that correct? That's right. He was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee from 2017 to 2019. And I'd like to think that some of those ideas we talked about on the back roads of Texas made it into the new tax law. I'm sure they did. How could they not? How could they not? You also spent six years advising international film production and tech companies in L.A., uh, right? And then you spent a few years in Paris helping French multinationals. That's right. Coming to grips with how to do business in the U.S. and understand our tax system. Exactly. But then most of your career in the last 20 years or so has been spent in Houston advising companies, mostly in the energy sector, correct? That's right. Going to all of those difficult places to do business. It uh, has always been challenging and never dull. Oh, and while I think of it, the uh, the views expressed uh, uh, by Merrill today are, are just simply her opinions and hers alone, and nothing that she or I say should be taken as legal or tax advice, and any listener should consult their own tax or legal advisors for their specific situation. Um, let's see. Uh, in addition, if we go back a little further, I believe you have a bachelor's degree in music from Vassar, right? That's right. And then you've also got some other voice uh, certificates uh, from Vienna. Is that correct? Yes. I had the opportunity to study on a graduate fellowship at the University of Music in Vienna, Austria. And while I was there, I sang all over Europe until I lost my voice. And then I had to find a legitimate way to earn a living. And that led me to law school at the University of Cincinnati. And I couldn't get a job after that degree, so I got another degree and borrowed a little <laughs> bit more money and got an LLM in transnational business and tax from McGeorge School of Law. 
and that's in Sacramento, California, and also with a campus in Salzburg, Austria. Okay. And before, and as you'd mentioned, you, you sang all over Europe. Um, uh, but even though when you went to law school, you did not cease your, uh, your singing, did you? No, my voice eventually came back, and I got to sing quite a bit at the Hollywood Bowl when I was living in Los Angeles. And then when I moved to Houston, I had the thrill of a lifetime getting to sing the national anthem for an Astros baseball game, and I'd like to think that that was part of the reason that they won that game. I'm I'm sure it was. You probably really set the tone for the whole game. And uh, and then I believe you also uh, have served on the board of the Houston Grand Opera, correct? That's right. I, that's right, Dave. I like to keep my hand in musical things, and I like to remind people that you can have a business career, but also have a love for the arts. That is awesome. That is inspiring. To uh, that one doesn't have to just be pigeonholed as a uh, as a tax professional. They can have other interests. Uh, beyond that. And speaking of other interests, I have a feeling, given your time in, in Austria, given your time in France, I have a feeling that you speak more languages than just English. Is that correct? I speak English at home on a daily basis. And then, <laughs> okay. Uh, for business, my main language is Spanish, which is the language I learned first when I was a, a child after English. And so I've done a lot of advising in Mexico and Latin America and worked with a number of Mexican companies investing in the U.S. because I was the gringa who could speak Spanish. And it turned out to be an ideal uh, way to get to work with some very interesting companies on some fascinating tax issues. But also I do business in French. And when pushed, I could do business in German, but people usually make fun of me for my Austrian accent. <laughs> and so I think that that's four languages I've counted, but isn't there a fifth one that you, you have some working knowledge in? I can sing a number of arias in Italian, and I can order a beer in Rome in Italian. Okay, so that's the that's the fifth one would be yeah would be Italian. Well, one of the the well, thank you uh, for for that additional color. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy uh, working with you over the the the, the last you know, number of years is. Because of your background in the arts, you have a unique historical context on taxation that I've always found fascinating. And before we dive into the disc, why don't we take a step back and talk about tax incentives from a historical perspective? Are you up for that? I am, because tax incentives, including things like the IC disc, are as old as government's seeking to squeeze revenue out of taxpayers. They're based on the assumption that human beings act based on what is beneficial to them or what punishes them. So since the dawn of history, governments have collected taxes on transactions, profits, sins, and even mere existence in the form of the poll tax while providing exemptions to encourage certain behavior. And Dave, for a fascinating romp through the history of the world, seen through the lens of tax policy, I highly recommend a book called For Good and Evil, The Impact of Taxes 
on the course of civilization, and it was written by a tax lawyer named Charles Adams. Hmm. For example, in the book, he attributes the fall of the Roman Empire to factors that include the tax system. There There was lax enforcement, and that meant that the wealthy stopped paying taxes. Farmers were taxed so heavily that they abandoned their fields and crops dried up. Starvation spread, and the legions stopped being supplied, making the empire vulnerable to rampaging Visigoths and and other invaders. But that's not the only interesting story. Uh, Okay, there's more? Yes. Oh, the book is fascinating, Dave. Anybody who has a passing interest in history should read it, because it really does show how decisions made by governments about how to tax their people really uh, change the course of history. For example, uh, at one point, the uh, Ottoman Empire was spreading into Europe and occupying the Balkans. And when the uh, when the government decided to end tax incentives that were being offered to Christians who professed Islam, if there was no break, no tax break, no convert. Really oh, interesting course. result. Yes, we might all, uh, all of Europe might have been conquered had it not been for the elimination of this tax break. Really? He also, Adams also cites harsh tax policies in Spain. Uh, from which the colonies in the New World were exempt as a reason why so many Spaniards relocated to the New World, and that triggered the decline of Spain itself. So it's no surprise that our Internal Revenue Code is full of levers to both entice and to punish. So this is not uh, a new invention, uh, even though the IRS was formed, what, in the early 1900s, I believe, 1917 or something like that? It came about, yes, after the uh, income tax law, which initially failed and was deemed unconstitutional, was then eventually uh, brought into law, and then the IRS has been with us ever since. Gotcha. So... um when you um when i think about uh, so now if we as we turn our attention more to the ic disc uh let's talk about tax policy uh i guess about the disc specifically and tax policy over say the last 3 or 4 decades uh, it seems like these export tax incentives the they seem to come and go is that that right they do and the ic disc is a tiny remnant whose usefulness remains attractive. And what I love about it as a tax policy wonk is it's grounded in economic substance. So I contrast that with some of the other incentives that I've watched come and go over the years. For example, in the late 1980s, an entire industry grew up around incentives for passive investing in wind turbines and concave mirrors to generate electricity and took out a whole part of the desert east of Los Angeles for these tax haven projects. Oh, really? And and film companies, uh, this is, I always loved watching film companies chase incentives offered by foreign countries. For example, Yugoslavia and Argentina, where those countries hope to host the filming of a blockbuster, but most of the time they ended up with turkeys such as, 
You may remember Transylvania 6-5000 or Naked Tango. These were films that got tax uh, arrangements that were attractive, but it didn't mean that it was the ticket to success in theaters. So, or said another way, you can't uh, cost cut your way to uh, to success in in business. It's something about that's right, and that's why incentives are so important. That that Dave, they really be linked to doing something, and not just to reducing taxes by by kind of sticking your finger up in the air and hoping that that uh, you catch an attractive loophole. Sure, sure. Well, when you when you talk to clients about IC disc. Uh, what are the, the typical questions and that they might have, and do they ever have any reservations? They do, and that's a good thing. I like it when clients ask questions uh, and want to understand something that at first blush may seem that it's a little bit dodgy. For example, I always get asked, is it a loophole that's likely to be plugged by Congress? Uh, other people say, gee, isn't the disc a sham corporation? It has no employees or assets, and it exists solely to generate a tax benefit. And the one I hate the most is when people ask me, is this a tax shelter like those smoke and mirrors things that accounting firms got in trouble for promoting? So ah, my that's a good point. <laughs> what's, your, what's your typical uh, response to these questions? It's an easy one to understand. The DISC is embodied in the Internal Revenue Code itself. It's not just a regulation or a ruling or a series of sham transactions. And so only Congress can get rid of it. Hmm. Okay. And now... And if you follow, If you follow the rules, and you know that what those are that seem a bit formulaic or mechanical. But if you follow them, the tax savings are legitimate and attractive. And what I find interesting is that there aren't a lot of court cases or IRS rulings interpreting the IC DISC statute and regulations. It's pretty much Mm -hmm. what you see is what you get. Not a lot of gray area or room for argument. You stick to the rules and the reward should result. Okay, well that's uh it sounds sounds good so far. Um well let's let's go back to the beginning of the disc. When when did this get started? Uh the disc was actually part of the Revenue Act of 1971. And in that law it provided the basic exemption from corporate income tax that the disc as a company still enjoys. And the second important thing that the act did was it postponed the time for taxing the DISC's shareholders on those tax-free earnings until the shareholders received an actual dividend. Why was that? Why was it? What do you think the motivation of Congress was to structure it that way? I think it came down to to wanting to encourage exports by small businesses using an easy-to-administer domestic corporation. And that way, small business could achieve benefits similar to the tax deferral that large corporations had been enjoying for years by using foreign subsidiaries as low-tax resellers. Okay. 
so it, it so that was the but but at its core it was really a deferral play right it was and that's what got it into trouble with our trading partners at the and how time that, how, how did it get well, us in trouble well if you remember back to the days of the gat or the general agreement on tariffs and trade which was the predecessor to the world trade organization the, yeah. it was viewed by members of the gat as an impermissible subsidy targeting exports from the US and harming our trading partners by allowing US exports into those countries at prices lower than what the same goods cost in the US so so did, uh, so did uh, what was congress's or the the government's answer to that well they repealed the disc and in 1984 they created something called the Foreign Sales Corporation, or the FISC. And that required that in place of using a U.S. incorporated company, that a foreign corporation would be used to assist in the export sale. And in that way, the U.S. claimed that this resembled a territorial system of taxation and therefore would be permissible under the GATT. Mm -hmm. And the key that was, was oh, that ahead. this this was not a paper company like the DISC. The FISC had to be incorporated outside the U.S. and it had to have employees and it had to undertake specific economic processes as outlined in the law. Hmm. And what year was that? That was 1984, which is a very special year for me because I oh, was, yeah? Why is I that? was starting my career. I was a newly minted tax lawyer, and I was sent off on my first foreign business trip to go to Brussels and to set up the Belgian branch of a FISC that was incorporated in Guam. And that oh, was wow. also my first interaction with Neil Block. Baker McKenzie's irrepressible guru who truly wrote the book on export-related incentives such as DISC and FISC. So for me, that was an exciting time, Dave. Sure. Well, just an FYI, I've, uh, I, I know Neil. We've, we've, uh, we've relied on his expertise uh, uh, many times through the years. And I'm actually hoping to have Neil uh, as a future guest uh, on, on the podcast. Now, I better not let him listen to your interview first, or it may intimidate him and he may not treat, wish to be on. So I may want to get him wrapped up and booked uh, before this, uh, this episode gets released. Well, it would be an honor to be on the IC Disc show and be able to say that Neil Block was also interviewed. That would be another career highlight for me, Dave. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, anything I can do to create highlights in your career, that's, uh, that, that's, what I'm all over now was the, now with the Fisk, uh, with some of the ways it differed from the disc, was it simpler or, or more complex to administer? It was way more complex because it had to have multiple agreements and subcontracts in foreign languages. And so it meant foreign legal entanglements through setting up a foreign corporation with all the governance requirements under foreign law, and it had to file tax returns in the foreign country. So this was a far cry from the DISC as a paper company tucked away safely in the U.S. 
the fisk was not popular with smaller exporters, the very people for whom DISC had been intended, especially because it required boots on the ground in the form of employees and economic activity in foreign locales that a lot of small exporters simply could not invest in. Wow, that's... uh... I, that's I'm I'm not a fisk guru, uh, and so that's that's really interesting on on just the ways that the fisk made it a lot more difficult. And I guess that's why when I hear about companies who used to have a fisk, it's typically larger companies. I guess that's the reason why. Yes, and it was popular for a while, but from the very beginning, there was. Uh, objection to the FISC from our trading partners, especially in the European Union. Again, there was the claim it was an impermissible export subsidy, giving U.S. goods an advantage in Europe over European-made products. And despite the requirement that the FISC be foreign and undertake significant activities outside the U.S., it was still basically dead on arrival uh, when it came to approval by our trading partners. Wow. And what year was this then that uh, that the FISC was basically killed? Well, it was killed off by it formally in 2000 with the Extraterritorial Income Exclusion Act, and that created the ETI, or Extraterritorial Income Benefit, that Mm -hmm. didn't require a separate corporation. A company could get it and simply exempt certain export sales from income tax, uh, while still retaining the requirements that activities and and components and so forth be U.S. made. So this, too, failed to pass muster with the WTO, and it led to years of complaints, reports, rulings, and appeals. And it's interesting that in, in a historic and ultimately successful threat to impose tariffs, this time on U.S. goods, the EU forced Congress to repeal the ETI in 2006. Wow. And, and I, I, let me just inter, interject something there. I had heard that, that what the kind of the, the uh, what really got the Europeans upset was that Boeing uh, received like, uh, like a billion dollars in tax savings in one of the first years and that the Airbus uh, didn't take kindly to that. Are you familiar with that? Well, I probably shouldn't comment on the the arguments in opposition to that statement, looking at what sorts of subsidies Airbus may have gotten. (laughs) That continues to remain controversial. So I think we'll step back from that one, Dave. Fair enough. But, you know, the Europeans have another aspect to their law that I think was interesting that Senator Max Baucus highlighted this in Uh, in his opening remarks from a Senate Finance Committee hearing a number of years ago, when he remarked that the WTO seems far more concerned with direct taxes, what we think of as income taxes, that might be export subsidies, but it ignores indirect taxes, such as value-added tax or VAT, that completely exempts export sales. Oh, yeah. I mean, that seems like an export subsidy, you know, I mean, a a disguised, slightly disguised export subsidy. Well, it's it's interesting because for our European trading partners, the lion's share of tax revenues come from VAT, 
transaction taxes rather than from corporate income taxes. So that exemption for for export sales from VAT remains firmly in place. But in the meantime, luckily, the IC disc has flown under the European radar since the repeal of ETI. But why do you think that is? I've heard different theories on that. Um, uh, some being that that the you know large public companies don't seem to use disc as much as they use ETI, uh, and maybe it just doesn't get the uh, attention. Uh, but what what are your thoughts on why that is? Well, I think it was a clever ploy on the part of Congress back in 1984 when they repealed the lion's share of the old DISC provisions in the code. They left this rump concept of the interest charge DISC so that it still benefited the DISC itself from the exemption from corporate income tax, but the shareholders no longer got to enjoy that indefinite deferral of tax on the DISC's earnings until some point in the future when they received a dividend. So instead, the shareholders became subject to an interest charge, and I think that took some of the sting out of the objection to to DISC. And I think the other point is, and you raise a very good one, Dave, about who uses the interest charge DISC. I think that really benefits a lot of small and medium-sized companies especially in the run-up to the 2017 tax law uh, reducing corporate income tax rates. The IC disc was really part of a perfect storm of tax circumstances, if you can ever really have anything like that. And that was the taxation of qualified dividends at capital gains rates and Congress's final commitment not to repeal the IC disc. A lot of people had, had sat on the fence for a long time saying, oh, it's going to be gone. Why do I need to invest in this thing? But when it became clear that the disc would remain around or the IC disc would remain around, it made it, it made it very attractive for individuals, especially who owned an S corporation or perhaps a limited liability company where the company's ordinary income from its sales activities was taxed only once at the shareholder level. Mm-hmm. So those those individuals could own the IC disc, including through a limited liability company, uh, in order to have more control over how profits would be allocated to those owners. And they could also determine what qualifying sales to run through the disc. They didn't have to put everything through there. It really became more of a tax planning approach and not just a tax incentive. So Mm. when you think about it, it's really pretty clever. The commission paid to the IC disc by the company, for example, the manufacturing company, that's a deductible business expense, that commission, and so for, so it lowers the taxable income of the manufacturing company. Then the IC disc receives the commission, and it's not taxed on it at all. The shareholders get a dividend out of the disc, and that dividend is eligible for preferential tax, tax rate 
uh, the preferential tax rate for capital gains. So during that perfect storm period, it was really a great arrangement. The bottom line for the owners of the manufacturing company who are shareholders of the IC disc is they replaced a chunk of income taxed at ordinary rates with dividends taxed at lower capital gains rates. What's not to love? I would agree. I would agree. What is there not to love? Um, and what? And I know that there's there's some industries that seem like they've been a better fit than um, than others. For for example, a lot of our clients are in the scrap metal business. Um, but I know there's other industries that have also found it particularly attractive. Uh, what are some of the other industries you've seen that it's real helpful for? I particularly like an underutilized aspect of IC disc. A lot of of engineering and architectural and design companies, especially in the oil field services realm, didn't know that they too could benefit from the IC disc. So beyond the realm of manufacturing, the IC disc is available with respect to engineering and architectural services if the project being designed will be built outside the U.S. This is especially interesting because the tax savings available from an IC disc help to alleviate the pain when foreign withholding taxes are collected from fees received by a U.S. design firm. So without getting too technical, let me just say that those foreign Withholding taxes are only creditable against U.S. tax on foreign source income, but services performed in the U.S. don't give rise to foreign source income. That's U.S. source income. So in many cases, those foreign tax credits would never be usable. And the benefits available from an IC disc for a design firm finding itself in this situation, it helps to take the sting out of this inherent asymmetry in taxing fees for services. No, I've seen that firsthand. We have several clients ourselves that are engineering firms that that, are involved in uh, construction projects related to pipeline projects and such outside the U.S. And I've seen firsthand where that can be um, very valuable, especially since oftentimes the those services firms, if they have a really high quality service, they may have higher gross margin percentages than you know, a lot of manufacturing companies. So the benefit uh, we've seen you know, substantial. That's a great point. And as we know, so many foreign countries where um, oil rigs are located uh, are ones that have high withholding taxes on any kind of a fee that's paid for engineering or construction services. And so you can really get trapped in that asymmetry and not be able to use a foreign tax credit that's being paid on gross income that you're getting from the foreign project, even though maybe 95% of your work is done in the U.S. Excellent, excellent point. Well, it sounds like the disc is just uh, is just heaven on earth, uh, nirvana, if you will. So, is it just you know a slam dunk? You just you, know, you just just go to town and, and and that's it on the disc, or well, or that's where you it? come in. That's where you come in, Dave, because <laughs> yeah. uh, the the IC disc remains an attractive incentive 
there's more to it than just setting up a paper company and watching the tax savings roll in. You know, there are, as I, as you and I have talked about so often over the years, it's essential that the requirements are met and that they're fully documented in a timely manner. And they may seem purely mechanical, but missing just one can lead to the IC disc being disqualified and therefore losing the tax exemption on its commission income. And, you know, in my experience, the sad truth is that not every advisor who claims to be knowledgeable about IC disc has the expertise and the resources to prevent that disqualification, but also to maximize the benefits to the owners based on the various methods for computing the IC disc commission. So... Mm-hmm done right, the IC disc can be a useful and legitimate way to reduce federal income taxes. And so it warms this tax lawyer's heart that the IC disc is still around. It survives and it thrives. Well, that's, uh, I'm glad to know that your, your heart is warmed by the IC disc. It's, uh, it's uh, I, I, I can't say that everybody's is, uh, you know, it's funny. I you've made me think of of a, a, a plumbing truck I saw recently, you know, kind of back to the comment about, you know, not every advisor who claims to be knowledgeable about the disc has the expertise. And I always find it interesting, the word specialize, and, you know, to me, specialize implies uh, an exclusion of other services, you know, to focus on just a narrow few. And uh, I've sometimes seen some firms there, they're, because they have such enthusiasm to do as much as they can for their clients, they end up, you know, specializing in, you know, 120 things. Well, anyway, this truck I saw, it was a plumbing truck. And I even took a picture of it that said, we specialize in new construction, remodeling, repairs, uh, emergencies, and consulting of new projects or something to that effect. And I was thinking to myself, what does that leave around plumbing that they don't do? That's right. And that's why I am very skeptical of advisors who try to be all things to all people, especially they don't want to appear to not have a certain expertise in front of their clients. But the client comes first, and it's important, especially in the IC disc area, which is so specialized, that people look to someone with the experience and the expertise. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we have a little bit of time left. Um, do you think we could maybe delve into just kind of a like a little mini case study or, or example or two? I mean, obviously, we're, you know, with with you know, clients being anonymous, but could you maybe give an example of of maybe a situation where you introduced uh, IC disc into the the planning and you know maybe how that came to be, or could you maybe just kind of walk us through an example? Well, I can think of one where it just seems so obvious the client was a small company; they didn't want to do any manufacturing outside the U.S. They had a proprietary product that was very unique in the oil field service business, a sort of a chemical product, and they were very worried about someone trying to reverse engineer it if they 
allowed too much of the manufacturing process to go on outside mm-hmm. the U.S. And yet, more than 50% of their customers were foreign customers. So I suggested that uh, they ought to consider having an IC disc. And I was met with blank stares and uh, like, well, what kind of a goofy uh, tax shelter <laughs> loophole are we talking about here? And as I kept explaining to them about it and how it had evolved over the years and it was still available and it was legitimate and it was in the Internal Revenue Code, they warmed to it and they did it. And they set it up and you helped with it. And for years after that, every time I would see them at a cocktail party or some other gathering, the first thing they said was, that IC disc, that's made all the difference. So you can't ask for more when you're a tax lawyer. Mostly people are mad at you about something, (laughs) some bad news you're trying to tell them. And here's a client who saw me as a hero because I knew you. Well, um, that sounds like a win-win all around. Uh, you were able to be a hero to the client, and you were also a hero to me at the same time. So that's a, that is a is a win all around. Um, what do you find is the biggest re- or reason that people who are eligible for a disc don't have a disc? In, from what you've seen in your experience. Or maybe several Uh, reasons that might come to mind? Yeah, I think it's a couple of factors, Dave. Um, I can think of a couple of instances when clients said to me that they had raised the issue with their tax advisor who wasn't familiar with it and poo-pooed it and just said, oh, that's going to go away. You, You can't do that. And so that's an education process for anyone who's advising a company that has export sales, that they should have the IC disc is one of the arrows in their quiver and make sure that they're pulling it out and shooting it at the target and getting their clients interested in it. Okay. So it's, it's, yeah. And that's, and this has been my experience in a lot of ways that it's really education or lack thereof. That's the main impediment or maybe not even education, but just knowledge, uh, you know, either by their CPA who maybe uh, has a focus on on small to mid market companies, but with no specific uh, exporting focus. So, you know, they may only have one or two clients that would even qualify, and uh, it seems like, you know, I mean, these these CP these firm serving companies like that. They really need to be a good all-around generalist firm. uh, Well, and I think another factor that has made IC Disc more attractive is that since companies have started selling all over the world through the internet, they can have they can be visible to their foreign customers without having to send a salesman to traipse around the uh, the UAE or something like that. So they have more foreign customers than they may have ever dreamed they would have. And it, I mean, I think one of the important points that you make, Dave, is that it doesn't require a huge investment to make the IC disc work. What's your basic threshold for when you would tell a client it's time to consider that they have enough export sales for a disc? 
you know, several, several million dollars, you know, it, it, two, three million dollars of, of exports. Mm-hmm. We find it's usually worth looking at. Well, and as you say, for high margin businesses like design firms and engineering firms, uh, that could be really attractive from the get go because of those higher margins, higher profits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I could could say so. Now, another um, uh, uh, angle I'd like to talk to you about, and that you're one of the few people, uh, and maybe the only person who really brought this up as far as this um, strategy on the disc is on uh, foreign companies, you know, foreign-owned companies using an IC disc. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I I think that's still somewhat controversial, and I have never had a client do that. I think in theory it would work, particularly if the company is the foreign parent company uh, is a resident of a country with which the U.S. has a treaty. But that's probably a good question for you to go over with Neil Block. Okay, I'll save that one uh, for Neil. I know that, that we never had a client that utilized that that structure, and I wasn't sure if uh, if if that was something you'd uh, you know had experience with you know personally with with one of your clients or not. So I will uh, I'll go over that with with Neil. But I got to tell you, I, I'm pretty sure Neil uh, has not sung the national anthem uh, of an opening game, and I'm also pretty sure he he, he uh, you probably have him on the languages. So so uh, so Neil's really going to have to you know step it up when I have him on the uh, on the program, right? Well, I think you could do hours with Neil on different disc scenarios that he's seen and cutting edge approaches that he's developed to help clients through this process. I mean, he's a very creative guy. And uh, so he doesn't have to sing in order to uh, <laughs> to make his clients happy. <laughs> no, and, and just just and just to be clear, we're, we're both huge fans of, of Neil. I'm just I'm just uh, having having some uh, some fun. Um, well, Meryl, I really appreciate your time uh, today. Was there anything else that uh, that we didn't cover that you think uh, should be mentioned as it relates to IC disk or uh, the history of taxation? No, I just think that people ought to go out and get Charles Adams' book on the history of taxation. It's a great read for an airplane trip, and it's full of fascinating tidbits. So maybe we can do an IC disk show in the future on all of the mistakes that governments have made and how they've changed the course of civilization through tax policy. I think that that may be a great idea. Well, I will, I've made note of the book and I'm going to add that to my reading list. So, well, with that, why don't we wrap up? And again, uh, Meryl, thank you very much for, uh, for being on the IC disk show. Well, thanks, Dave. And thanks for always doing such a great job for my clients. It means a lot to me because when they're happy, I'm happy. Well, it's it's always a pleasure working with you and your clients. You have a great day. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's icdiscshow.com. 
dash D-I-S-C com, and we have additional information on the podcast archived episodes as well as a button to be a guest so if you'd like to be a guest go select that and fill out the information and we'd love to have you on the show so that's it we'll be back next time with another episode of the ic disc show